All right, I'm glad that you're here. I appreciate you coming back. And uh, I told you this morning that I was going to give you a little bonus material. I I've, I've, don't know that I've ever done this before. I can't remember uh, doing this before. Uh, but, you know, those of you who have prepared uh, Sunday school lessons and that kind of thing, you probably know that a lot of stuff gets left on the cutting room floor. You just can't share everything that you learn, everything that you prepare. And uh, I've told you before, I, I kind of tend to over-prepare anyway. So uh, there's always something that's left on the floor, the cutting room floor, that I don't get to share uh, on a Sunday morning. And uh, I, I think... What I want to share with you tonight is kind of bonus stuff, some stuff that I learned this week, and it had me so jumped up and excited, I thought, I just got to share that somewhere sometime. Uh, so I'm just going to take a few minutes. This has nothing to do with First John. This is related to this morning's message, and it's just kind of bonus material. We'll cover that, then we'll get into First John. I told you this morning, one of the points that I was making this morning as we are talking about Shabbat or Sabbath, and we're talking about margins in our lives. I told you that God takes the concept of the Sabbath very seriously. And to make the case, I pointed out three things. First of all, that He initiated the concept of Sabbath at creation. That this whole idea of margin or rest or Sabbath goes all the way back to creation. And I just can't stress, I think, the significance of that. Of all the things that God could have emphasized at creation, that's one of the things that he emphasized, the need for rest. And it's not just physical rest, but it's also renewal, your, your relation, renewing your relationship with the Lord. So you might say rest slash worship. And then, again, to emphasize how important this is, we talked about that not only does this go back to creation, but he also included this in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, that this was literally written in stone. Uh, the concept of Sabbath, rest, renewal, worship. And then I also told you in Exodus 31, to show you how important this is to the Lord, uh, that he also instituted the death penalty for those who are working on the Sabbath. And that's hard for our modern minds to wrap around that. And there is a reference that I, I didn't... I write it down, but there is a reference where a guy was gathering wood on the Sabbath, and they discovered he was gathering wood. And it says that they, they called him, and they didn't know what to do with him. And God said, I tell you what to do with him. Stone him. Again, we just can't get our minds around that. That that would be a prescription that God would give for breaking the Sabbath. I don't know about you, I'm glad we're not in the Old Testament days, right? In that regard. But here's the bonus material. God took this a step farther and declared that the land would observe a Sabbath as well. Take your Bibles, open to the book of Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus chapter 25. All right, Leviticus chapter 25, we're going to read verses 1 through 5 if you're taking notes. Look what it says. <coughs> the Lord said to Moses on Mount Sinai, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land I'm going to give you, that is what we would call the promised land, the land itself, 
must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. How's that going to happen? Well, verse 3. For six years, sow your fields. And for six years, prune your vineyards and gather their crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a Sabbath of rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. Do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the grapes of your untended vines. The land is to have a year of rest. God instructed his people to not only rest one day out of seven, but he also commanded them to allow the land to rest one year out of seven. Farmland in the promised land was to be left fallow, F-A-L-L-O-W, that means unplowed, untended, on that seventh year. A Sabbath year for the land, a Sabbath year of rest for the land. Now we might look at that and say, why does the land need to rest? Well, agricultural researchers have proven that land produces more when you let the land rest. After a few years of sowing, uh, even in today's time, they talk about crop rotation. As some of you who are farmers, you may do that. Crop rotation, and you let your land rest a year because the nutrients in the soil become depleted and resting, resting the land allows it to recuperate. And God had this concept from the very beginning. Now, you would think that if God said, okay, here's what you do, not only one day out of seven, you rest, but one year out of seven, the land rests, you would think that the people said, because God said it, okay. But have you ever thought about letting the land rest for a year? Not planting crops for a year? You couldn't go to Publix and pick up something if you're hungry. So if you let the land rest, if you don't plant crops, guess what that takes? That takes great faith not to plant any crops for next year. Throughout the Bible, God has tried to teach His people again and again the necessity of trusting Him. So the nation of Israel, which may not surprise you, the nation of Israel heard what God said and they ignored it. Leviticus chapter 26, Leviticus chapter 26, verse 33 through 36, if you're taking notes. Here's what God says, I will scatter you among the nations, and I'll draw out my sword and pursue you Your land will be laid waste, and your cities will lie in ruins. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbath years all the time that it lies desolate, and you are in the country of your enemies. Then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. All the time it it lies desolate, the land will, will have the rest. It did not have during the Sabbaths you lived in it. God said, you're going to go into captivity. We call it the Babylonian captivity. You're going to go into captivity, and when you're in captivity, while you're in captivity, one of the things that will come out of that is that the land will have a chance to rest. It will be able to experience the Sabbaths that you never let it have. Now, we don't have time to get into a lot of this, but let me just kind of summarize it for you. It is believed, based upon Leviticus as well as the prophecies of Jeremiah, that the people of God ignored the prophecy of God for 490 years. 
For 490 years, they rejected God's counsel. For 400, and I'm not just talking about the land here. In, for 490 years, they were involved in idolatry. And this is why God kept saying through Jeremiah and other prophets, uh, if you don't turn back to the Lord, you will experience the judgment of God. You'll be taken out of this land if you don't respect the Lord and respond to him. It's believed, based on the prophecies of Jeremiah, that for 490 years, the people continued to ignore God and basically thinking, nothing bad's happening, we're doing okay. 490 years, they heard what the prophet said and essentially rejected what the prophet said, especially in the area of idolatry. You can read about all kinds of, of, of idol worship, all kinds of, of crazy stuff that they did. But one of the things apparently they did during that time, not only was idolatry, but also ignoring this concept of the land having a Sabbath every seven years. And so because after 490 years, God sent them into Babylonian captivity. Now watch this. They were, they were supposed to have, they were supposed to observe the Sabbath year. Uh, how, how, what was the figure? Every How many years? So if they were supposed to observe it every seven years, if you divide that out, that would be 70. Guess how many years they were in Babylonian captivity? 70. I'll show you a scripture. This is where I got excited when I was studying this week. I just wanted to tell somebody. All right? They, they missed, apparently, they missed 70 Sabbath years. And so God sent them to captivity to let the land have its 70 Sabbaths. Let me show you 2 Chronicles chapter 36. 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 19 through 21. 2 Chronicles chapter 36. And chapter 36 is talking about the fall of Jerusalem to the nation of Babylon and how the people of God were destroyed or how, how the temple and the air in Jerusalem were destroyed and they were carried off into captivity into Babylon. And look what it says. Verse 19, they set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. Watch verse 21. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rest. All the time of its desolation, it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. Isn't that cool? I, I love the way it's written here. The land enjoyed... It's Sabbath rest for its 70 years until the prophecy of Jeremiah was fulfilled. Can I say to you, if God is concerned about the land enjoying its rest, how much more is he concerned about you enjoying yours? God takes seriously the idea of a Sabbath, the idea of rest, if you study your Bible, you cannot deny that. That this is an essential, essential doctrine 
engraved in stone in the Ten Commandments. All right. So I want to pray. That was the bonus material. I want to pray, and then we're going to get into First John. Father, I, I do thank you for just kind of showing me uh, some new stuff this week, and, and just amazing to me how what you declare, you fulfill. You're not pretending to be God, you are God. And you know what's best for us. And sometimes when we think we know what's best, you show us the truth. And I know many of us, myself included, are still, still kind of working on and wrestling with the idea of Sabbath rest. I know I still haven't mastered that, but I see the need for it. I see the need for it in my life. I see the need for it in our church. I see the need to acknowledge that you are God and to rest and be renewed through our time with you. So continue to teach us, continue to show us, continue to lead us that we might be your people and the people that honor your name and your word. And now, Father, I pray that as we look at 1 John, I pray for your spirit to again be our teacher, be our guide through this incredible book. We pray that in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. All right, let's open the Bible, if you haven't already, to 1 John. <clears throat> we started in this book last Sunday night. We'll be looking at it tonight, and then, Lord willing, we'll be looking at it for a final time next Sunday night. And then two Sunday nights from now, we won't have the evening service because we'll have that special morning service. So we'll have one more chance next Sunday night to kind of get into this book we call First John. So let me review, in case you were not here, real quickly, let me just hit the highlights. I told you last week that First John naturally falls into two sections. Chapters 1 and 2 talk about our fellowship with God. Chapters 3, 4, and 5 really deal with our relationship with God. And in each of those, God, uh, John gives us three tests to determine if we have true fellowship with God or if we have true relationship with God. He gives us three tests. And maybe you've got it on your notes or maybe you remember, but what are the three tests to help us determine our fellowship and our relationship with God? What are, they're the same words. What are they? Obedience, love, and truth. The test of obedience, the test of love, the test of truth. John would say, you might claim that you know the Lord. You might claim that you know God. But are you obeying him? Are you loving others? Are you living according to the truth? Because if you're not obeying him, if you're not loving others, if you're not living the truth, then you're deceiving yourself. John is pretty cut and dry. John draws a line and says, it's either this or not this. And so his thesis is that at times our fellowship with God will change, but our relationship with God never changes. Now, again, just in review, we talked about who the author of this book is. Of course, it's, it's some John, but which John is it? Who is the author of this book? John the Apostle. John the son of Zebedee, also known as John the Apostle. And he wrote not only this book, what other letters or books did he write? There's five of them total. Gospel of John. 
first, second, third John, and there you go. I told you also that John was part of the inner circle of Jesus. In fact, he likely, I believe, was considered Jesus' best friend. That is significant when you get into what we're going to be talking about tonight. Likely was Jesus' best friend. Definitely knew him very, very well. And then I, I emphasized last week that John was the last living apostle. He was the last clear witness, the last clear voice to witness to Jesus. James, his brother, was the first apostle to die. He died a martyr's death. John was the last one to die, and he was the last true witness to Christ. All right? <clears throat> now, so that's just kind of review. We talked about some other things, but let's just get into tonight's study. I want to talk about the situation that prompted John to write this book. What was the situation that prompted John to write this book? There's two things I want to emphasize here. If you're taking notes, uh, William Barclay said the problem that the church was experiencing was twofold. He said, first of all, there was a falling away. There was a falling away. And what he means by that is this, that there were second and even third generation Christians who were becoming less and less committed to Christ. If you think about it, those who were followers of Christ, the apostles, extremely committed to the Lord. But let me just see if I can illustrate it this way. So you have, you have Jesus who lived his life, and, and then you have this passing of time after Jesus. Those who were the apostles... Extremely committed to Christ, extremely committed to the Lord. But as, as time passes, then you have people who don't have the relationship with Jesus that the apostles did. And the further you get away from Jesus, the less contact that they had with who Jesus was and why he came. And so when you get to the time of, of John, about, roughly speaking, about 60 years after Jesus roughly speaking, about 60 years after Jesus, then this concept of who Jesus was and what Jesus was like and what Jesus demanded and even what Jesus taught, over a period of 60 years, that begins to get cloudy. That begins sometimes to even change. And you have, in that period of time, people arising with their own ideas. And we're going to talk about those ideas in just a moment. So the problem in the church was twofold. Once the first thrill of, and enthusiasm of following Jesus had begun to fade, it, get, it became harder and harder and harder to truly become a fully devoted follower of Jesus. And then the second reason that John wrote was because of these ideas that began to develop within the ranks of the church. The big heresy that was rampant in John's day was the teaching of Gnosticism. Uh, go ahead and put that first slide up if you have it, guys. Teaching of Gnosticism. This teaching came from men who basically were trying to change or improve the Christian faith. They wanted to make Christianity intellectually respectable. And they actually tried to change the Christian faith. I want to be clear about something. We're going to be talking about it tonight. This idea of Gnosticism was a heretical doctrine. It was heresy. But it was invading the church. 
It was a combination of Eastern mysticism and Greek dualism. And by the time of the, by the, time of the second century, they had become, it had become a fully developed theological system. And so John was writing to help people understand the truth regarding Gnosticism, and more importantly, the truth about Jesus. Now let me try to explain Gnosticism to you. The most dangerous heresy in the first two centuries of the church was Gnosticism. And its central teaching was, go to the next slide, the central teaching was that the spirit is entirely good and matter is entirely evil. If you would go back to the first one real quickly. The whole idea of Gnosticism is based on knowledge. The Greek word gnosis, having superior knowledge. And the idea was that these people, the Gnostics, said that, the, uh, that they're, yeah, you've got your, look up here, you've got your ideas about Jesus, but, but we've, we've got some new information. We have new knowledge that you need to know about. And the further you get away from Jesus, the easier it is to sell people on this idea. Had, had they tried this a year after his death, burial, and resurrection, that wouldn't have worked. But 60 years later, it's easier to sell your heresy. And so the Gnostics came in and talked about superior knowledge, and, and the, the way to, to real truth is through the, not, through the knowledge that they, they had. All right, go to, back to that second slide now. So here's the kind of the, the basic idea. The spirit is entirely good and matter is entirely evil. Now, if you think about that, spirit is entirely good and matter is entirely evil. That, that in the very beginning, leads to a big question. First of all, what is matter? Talk to him. What is matter? We are, Right? Everything in the world is, right? That's matter. The only thing that's not matter is that which is spirit. The Gnostics taught spirit is entirely good. Matter is entirely evil. Which brings up a very valid question. And the very valid question is this. So where did the world come from? Did, did, did God, who is spirit... Create this world of matter that is evil? So where did the world come from? How did the world get here? Well, the Gnostics said, I'm glad you asked. The Gnostics would say, there is a God who is spirit. And because he is spirit, he is what? He's good. But then there's this world that is matter... And because it is matter, it is evil. So, how do we have this world that we live in? The Gnostics said, well, you see, there is this, this idea that there is this series of lesser gods. These are supposed to be circles. I'm not drawing it very good. So, there... Here's how they would explain the world and how you and I got here. That there was actually a lesser God who created the world. This lesser God 
is the God of the Old Testament. That the God of the Old Testament, it even says in the Old Testament that God created the world. And so the Gnostics would say, there was a lesser God. He, he was not as good as, as, as the, the one true God, the God of spirit. He was a lesser God. And he's the one who created the world. And then Jesus. Well, Jesus was on down the line right in here. So the Gnostics would say there was this series, and, and we, you know, how all this was supposed to come about, I'm not sure, but there was these series of beings, and the further you get away from the one who is spirit, the more evil they become because they become more and more like matter. So eventually you get to the one who is, who is like us. All right, so that's the first teaching. The spirit is entirely good. Matter is entirely evil. All right, so I'm just trying to give you some of the summaries of Gnosticism. That's the first one. Here's the second one. Man's body, which is matter, is therefore evil. Man's body, which is matter, is therefore evil. It's, it makes sense, doesn't it? If spirit is good and matter is evil, then, then your body is evil. Some of you didn't need me to tell you that. You already knew that. All right. So again, where did that come from? The series of lesser gods brought about life on earth. And that's why we have the body that we have. Now, watch this. The next one. Salvation is escape from the body and achieved by faith in, not by faith in Christ, but by special knowledge. The Gnostics would say salvation is really just escaping this body. And you don't escape the body through faith in Christ and salvation. No, 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 no. No, you escape the body by special knowledge. That's the, the avenue that brings about this salvation where you can leave this body. Number three. Christ's humanity was denied. See if this makes sense. What? Look up here. They would say, Jesus, he really wasn't human. He only appeared to be human. That, that's docetism. He only seemed to have a body. Because in their mind, if, if the spirit is good and matter is evil, there's no way he could have a human body. And so that's docetism that said he only seemed to have a body. He only seemed to be human. Uh, that, that's docetism. And the others said, no, the divine joined Jesus at baptism and left him before he died. That's Serinthianism. It was uh, a view, the spokesman was Serinthius. And this view was, was the idea that, listen, yeah, he was God in flesh, but, but really what happened was he was a man. And remember at his baptism, it says the spirit came down on him in the form of a dove. Serinthius would say, that's when Christ came on the human Jesus. And then do you remember when he said on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Serinthia said, you see, that's when, when the Christ left him. Now the reason that was important is because they couldn't conceive in their mind that Jesus could actually suffer and die on a cross. Because he's spirit. Now I know we're getting in the deep weeds, but hang on. Let's go to 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. 
1 John chapter 1, verse 1, here's why John begins his letter the way he did. I alluded to this last week. That which was from the beginning. Look up here at my diagram. John would say, listen, he didn't come. You've got it wrong if you think he came into existence eventually. He was with God. He was God in the very beginning. That which was from the beginning, which we have, watch this, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. You know what John was saying? He didn't appear to be human. He was human. We saw him. We heard him. And most importantly, we touched him. Now, Angie asked me a question last week I didn't have the answer for, and I had to do a little research. And in fact, I've, I love the way that when you read the Bible, you can always learn something new no matter how many times you've read it. She, she said, who's the we in verse 1? I thought, what are you talking about, we? And it's in verses 1, 2, and 3. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which is with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. So who's the we? I did all kinds of research. Nobody would tell me. Nobody, nobody would, would address the we. And I, as I looked at the context, I thought, okay, go back to the text. Look at where, what's the context. The context says, we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we have looked at with our hands, we have touched, and we proclaim. I think he's talking about the apostles. And in fact, after I did that, kind of going back to the text and, and coming to that conclusion, I finally did find one source who said the same thing, that he's talking about the apostles. So that's, that's my best guess. It's, he's talking about the apostles. You say, well, I thought all the apostles were dead by now. They were. He was the last voice. He was the last representative. He was declaring what the other apostles had declared, and he was still kind of representing them. So, Christ's true humanity was denied through Gnosticism, this teaching that was invading the church, that he really wasn't human, he just appeared to be human, or Christ came on him for a while and then left. And then there was another one, uh, another uh, thing I want you to see. Is, well, I'm sorry, go back. Number four, you had it right. Since the body was considered evil, it was to be treated harshly. Another belief of Gnosticism. Because the matter is evil, because the body is matter, it's to be treated harshly. This is an ascetic form of Gnosticism. Basically, this is the, the type of Gnosticism that, that would say, because your body is evil and matter, and it's evil, you need to try as best you can to bring it into control. You need to try as best as you can to, to harness the evil, if you will. And so, let me show you in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. How Paul addresses this form of Gnosticism. This ascetic type of Gnosticism is, is part of the background for the letter of Colossians. Chapter 2, verse 21. Well, let's start in verse 20. 
since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why as though you still belong to it, why as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules, to the rules of man, to the rules of the world? And then notice this is in parentheses uh, or quotation marks. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Paul is quoting what the people have been saying to one another. He said, you're saying to one another, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Then he says, these are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Notice he said, these things that you're declaring we ought to do and not do, this is based on human ideas, human commands, human teaching. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh, look at this, and their harsh treatment of the body but they lack value in restraining sensual indulgence. Here, Paul was writing about Gnosticism, just just like John was. It was pervading the church. Different forms of Gnosticism, yes, but it was infiltrating the church by the second century. By the middle of the second century, it had become an official kind of doctrine and belief. All right, let let me give you one or two other uh, descriptions of Gnosticism before we leave tonight. Remember this one. Oh, I'm sorry, go back one to four. Since the body was considered evil, it was to be treated harshly. That was one form of Gnosticism. Now look at the next one. This dualism led to, I have a hard time with that word, licentiousness. I think I said that right. Basically, another form of Gnosticism was, watch this. Since only the spirit is good, it doesn't matter what you do in your body. Your body's evil anyway. And there's, there's no concept of obeying the law. There's no moral code. Because you're in your, your body, and, and your body is evil. So you might as well enjoy it and do all, anything you want to. So there was no moral restraint. It's just go ahead and, and, and enjoy life because no matter what you do, it still means your body is evil. Matter is evil. Now, With that background, let's look into the Word. Look in 1 John, going back to 1 John, chapter 1. First John, chapter 1, look at verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship with Him, that is with Jesus, yet walk in darkness... We lie and do not live by the truth. Look in chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. The man who says, I know him, that is, I know Jesus, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. That's pretty stern there, isn't it? John said, listen, if you're not living by the truth, he's a liar. But look at verse 5 and 6. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love truly is made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. John was trying to say to the church, it does matter how you live. You don't have a license to live any way you want to. You can't say it doesn't matter, just, just go enjoy yourself. No, it does matter how you live because you're living a life that Jesus wants you to live. And look in chapter 3. He gets real clear in chapter 3. Verses 8 8 through 10. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, 
because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. I love that. I got that underlined in my Bible. I read it yesterday or today. I can't remember. And, and, and I started praying, Lord, just destroy the devil's work. Just destroy the devil's work. I think that's a good prayer. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Verse 9. Look what he says in verse, verse 9 and 10. No one who is born of God will continue to what? To sin. Because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. John was fighting this concept that was being taught in the church by outsiders that it really doesn't matter what you do in your body because the body's evil anyway. There's no concept in their mind to obey the law of God. Why would that matter? Because you're still in your body. So relax. Go do anything you want to. It really doesn't matter. You've got a license to sin, is what the Gnostics would say. And John would say, no, you don't. You've got an obligation to let Jesus live in you and through you. And you have to walk in the light as he is in the light. And if you're living in sin, then you are lying and you're not part of him. Pretty clear, pretty bold. All right, so I've got one more. I don't think, is there any other slides? I don't think, yeah, there is. Okay, good. Couldn't remember if I put this one up there. Some Gnostics claim, some Gnostics claim to so spiritual. I think this, I didn't type that very well. Some Gnostics claim that they were so spiritual through their knowledge that they were above and beyond sin. This whole concept of if I am enlightened enough about this idea of spirit and matter, that I can be above and beyond sin. That the concept of sin doesn't really apply if you have the superior knowledge. Look what John says in direct response to that. 1 John chapter 1. Look what he says. Verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. I love the way that John is so crystal clear in his teaching. But you need to understand throughout this book, again and again and again and again, he's fighting this idea of Gnosticism that has invaded the church. And he doesn't want his people to be led astray. So John wrote this letter basically for two purposes. We're going to look at him in the text and then we'll be done. He wrote this letter with two basic purposes in mind. One was to expose the false teachers in the church. He wrote this letter to expose the false teachers in the church. I can show you that in the text, 1 John chapter 2, verse 26. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. John understood that there were people in the church actually trying to lead people astray. He understood the gravity of what they were doing. And look up here. He understood the gravity of this doctrine. He understood the gravity of this teaching. He understood that 
that everything about the gospel was at stake because they were denying the humanity of Jesus Christ and the deity of Jesus Christ. And so John was writing to expose false teachers. Number two, he also wrote to give believers assurance of their salvation. He wrote to give believers assurance of their salvation. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, let me, let me just explain it to you this way. You probably sat there tonight as I've tried to explain the basic beliefs of Gnosticism and you've, you've, you've kind of gotten it but kind of confused and, and it's like, wow, this is kind of crazy stuff. Imagine if you lived during that time. And, and some of the people that you know and respected were coming into the church and they were teaching this. And they had their own little home groups and they were trying to explain to you the thorough knowledge that you needed. And if you had the thorough knowledge, then you could be enlightened. And if you were enlightened, then you could experience freedom from the body. And if you experience freedom from the body, then you could experience salvation. Imagine how confusing that would be when, when others were coming into the church and proclaiming the simple gospel. Jesus Christ came in the form of a man. He was God in flesh. He died on the cross. He died for our sins. They buried him. He resurrected from the grave. You can put your faith in Christ and have new life in him. And people in the church are like, I don't know what to believe. I'm confused. So John says, I've written these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. All right, finally. I, basically, I, I would summarize it this way. I really believe that though he was late in life, I really believe the, the, the three and a half years that John spent with Jesus was burned in his memory. Now as an old man, an aged, aged disciple, as he reflected on those three and a half years that he and the other apostles had with the Lord, those experiences were burned in his memory and now, as he was overseeing these churches in Asia Minor, he wanted to be sure that the churches under his care enjoyed that same fellowship with the resurrected Lord that he and his apostles, fellow apostles, had enjoyed. He wanted to make sure that the truth of the gospel was presented to the next generation. He wanted to make sure that that which he had experienced that which he had heard, that which he had touched, that which he knew firsthand would be passed on to the next generation and not diluted or changed. He wanted the purity of the gospel to be known. So he wrote this letter. Y'all be upset if I let you out early? All right, next Sunday night, we're going to dig a little deeper. We won't be talking so much about this kind of stuff. We're going to kind of open the Word and let the Word speak and dig a little deeper into First John, okay? God bless. Thanks for being here.